0: This is Michael Easley in Context. The older I get, my tolerant views get shorter. When I see the name of Christ vilified, it really makes me mad. When it seems to me that only Christians are fair game, it makes me really mad. When they can wail on and say terrible things about Christians in our great country, it just makes me want to get an Uzi. And now your host. Dr. Michael Easley. Well, you're going to have to listen to the rest of the broadcast to see how in the world, or if I even, get out of that statement. Hi, this is Michael Easley in Context. Glad you have joined us again today on the broadcast. We're in a series called Living Life from the Heart out of Psalm 5 this week. And perhaps you're similar in that if you're a believer in Christ, it feels like we're the only group that can be vilified and people still get away with it. Does that stir up something righteous in you? It's a little bit of righteous indignation and anger, and I want to get even, or I want justice out of this. And is that the right response? Well, as we'll see from the psalmist today, uh, he's going to take us in a little different direction. Let's pick up the broadcast. Notice what he does with this. English translation is different greatly in verse 3, so I don't know what text you're using in front of you. I'll show you a couple of them. NASB says, I will order my prayer. The King James, which is the same as the New King James, says, I will direct my prayer. NIV says, I lay my request before you. ESV says, I will prepare a sacrifice. The New English Translation, the Net Bible says, I present my case before you, and the New Century Bible says, I will tell you what I need. That's really bad, I'm sorry. With all due respect, that's terrible. Um, We get a sense with what the English translators are fumbling with. This is a complicated word. It's a complicated translation to our English mind. Order, direct, lay my request, prepare a sacrifice, present my case, tell you what I need. What are they trying to wrestle with? Well, let me try and give you a sense of this. The word means to order something, like arranging a wood pile for example in Genesis 22 it's used when Abraham orders the wood to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice in Numbers chapter 23 verse 4 it's used of how you build the altar you arrange it a certain way In uh, Psalm 23 and Isaiah 21, it's used of preparing a table. Uh, He prepares a table before me. So there's some order to this word. Um, It's also used in Job of the way a speech is prepared out of words. On and on we can talk about the word usage. You know the way you determine meaning in the Bible is how a word is used. You have to look at how it's used. How many of you own a concordance? An exhaustive concordance. How many of you know how to use the exhaustive concordance? Yeah, there's a little difference there. Um, an exhaustive concordance, I'll give you a little primer here. All you have to do, let's say you're going to study the word order. If you use an NIV, you have an NIV exhaustive concordance. If you use a New American Standard, you have a New American Standard exhaustive concordance. It's important a concordance match your translation. The Strong's only comes in King James. It's a good way to do it. You have to have the same text you study and the same concordance. And you look up the word order. And the concordance will have it from the first time it occurs, let's say Genesis 22, 6, all the way through the Bible. There's a little number on the side called the Strong's number because Strong's lost his mind putting numbers on all the words in the Bible. He died with a number on his grave. It just says <laughs> a Hebrew number. No one knows what it means. Um, these guys, before computers, studied the Greek and Hebrew text and they found the root of every single word. It's an amazing task and put it in that big book with the smallest print you've ever done seen. And in that text, what you're doing is you're seeing how did the author use the word? So the ones I gave you, sacrifice, arranging showbread, arranging an altar, preparing one's words, preparing a table, uh, the way the word is used colors in the meaning. So we start to say, oh, I see what this field of meaning could apply to. You've all heard this silly story about the word trunk. What can the word trunk mean? Give me some ex- explanations of how the word trunk is used. Elephant. Elephant's trunk. A car trunk. Who said car? A boot of a car. Benny's really hogging a candy. Storage. Luggage. Who said luggage? Luggage. Tree trunk. All right. We've got, I think tree was over here too. Train. Man, you're really smart. Okay, now, that's six, right? Was that six or seven? If I say the peanut is in the trunk, have I narrowed the field of meaning? Not really. Because the peanut could be in the trunk of a tree, the trunk of a car, the trunk of an elephant. If I say the zookeeper is trying to get the peanut out of the trunk, have I narrowed the field of meaning probably more? Okay, this is the same challenge that a Bible student has. How the word is used gives the meaning. All that for free. Now, why am I belaboring this? Because if David is saying, morning by morning, I'm going to order my prayer, does that mean he's going to offer a sacrifice? We have good examples of that. He's established the Levitical priesthood is set in place, and they're supposed to what every morning? What are they offering? What kind of sacrifice? What kind of burnt a lamb. One in the morning, one in the evening. If the sacrificial system was working properly, the Levitical priests were to order and attend the wood, the water, and the sacrifice every single morning. If you look at Exodus 29, verses 38 to 39, you'll see how every single morning. Now, here's a, here's a question for you Bible students. Did David have the temple complex? No. Where are the sacrifices taking place in David's day? In the tabernacle. Where is the tabernacle? Where is the tabernacle in David's reign? Mount Moriah. It moves where God puts his name. Now, when David builds the house, what's David's place called? The city of David, or the holy city, or Mount Zion, all these are parallels. You have Mount Gilboa, you have the Kedron Brook, all that. How many of you have been to Israel? You have to go to Israel before you die. You have to go to Israel before you die. This is like reading uh, two-dimensional stories. It will become holographic once you go to the Holy Land, to the land of Israel. And you will see the Herodian walls, and you will see where the temple complex was. And the tabernacle complex, before it's built, is right next to David's house. You think he heard or uh, the commotion of the sacrifice or perhaps smelled the aroma of a sacrifice in the morning? So if David is in his house, if he's in the city, which is a t- timestamp problem, we just don't know. But the way he talks about it, look at the psalm. In the morning, I will, you will hear my voice. I will order my prayer to you. And we'll get some cues here in a minute that let's just, for conversation's sake... His holy temple down in verse 7, I believe it is. Let's say the tabernacle complex is beside him. And so morning by morning, he's involved watching this. I suspect in my sanctified imagination, he could smell the smoke of the sacrifice. Now, this question is, the tabernacle is not called uh, the temple in David's time. Twice in your Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 1, nine and 1 Samuel 3.3, 3, that's the story of Hannah. And she goes Where? to the temple. Temple ain't built. So in Hannah's day, they were using the word synonymously for what becomes the official temple complex in Saul's time when he builds. Remember, David spends the last years of his life assembling this huge amount of material list so that Saul can uh, build the tabernacle complex that he couldn't, David couldn't build because of his hand. So he gives to his son Solomon, excuse me, he gives to his son Solomon, not Saul. He gives to his son Solomon, so Solomon will be in position to build the temple complex that David was not allowed by God to build. But God said, build yourself a house, which he did. Um, Let's move on. Verse 3, you'll see the phrase here where he says, eagerly watch. Let me read the verse again. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. So David's saying, you're going to hear a prayer from me. You're going to hear my voice of praise every morning. And in the morning, I will order, and if you look at the NASB, the words, my prayer, are in italics, meaning the translators are leading you to a conclusion that's not there in the Bible. Anytime you read an italic phrase in the New American Standard, it's a suppletion, meaning the New American Standard Lockman Foundation translators put that in there to smooth the reading that's another reason why I like the NASB. It's a very wooden text, a little harder to read than some other Bibles. But you know those words aren't in the Hebrew text. In the morning, I will order to you and watch. That's what it literally says. It doesn't have the eagerly part. What's David saying here? David's saying here, every single morning, this thing is so consuming to me, we'll get a hint later on, it's his enemies, that I'm waking up and I'm going to pray to you. And maybe he's part of the sacrificial system. Maybe he's just saying, I'm going to order my words to you in my prayer, just like I'd formally order a sacrifice. Like we'd put the wood together and we'd bring the lamb in and we'd cut the lamb and we'd bleed it at the base of the altar and we'd, we'd only burn the parts that were acceptable and we'd take the refuse away because you approach God carefully and according to his law because he's holy. It's not just a random set of lists on how to prepare the sacrifice. You're approaching the God of the universe. And you do it the way I told you to do it for a reason. Even if you don't understand the reasons, David says, I'm going to come to you in a formal way of worship every morning with my prayer. Now, the phrase eagerly watch, uh, we get the word eagerly probably from the word watch. It's an anticipation. We know there was watchmen on the wall. A watchman who falls asleep is not much help. A watchman who stays awake and is looking is a very difficult job. Um, When I wake up in the morning, I need two things. I need caffeine and oxygen, usually in that order. And this is my oxygen. And I have to have the caffeine so that I can take a breath. And I get up, Cindy gets up, whoever gets up first, coffee gets going, wash my face, I go sit down in my chair, I open up my Bible, Cindy does the same in her chair, and those everyday rituals are not because we have to, but because we want to. Not because we should, but because we get to. Now, It wasn't always that way. In my college years, I did it because I was supposed to. Did it for three years because I was supposed to do it. And I did it seven out of seven, three out of seven, four out of seven, five out of seven. And then one day I woke up and said, this isn't something I do to check a box or read a page of a devotional. This is because I worship Christ. And in the morning, I get to. And I'm glad he hasn't told me caffeine is sinful yet. (laughs) Because then we'd have a problem. Morning by morning, I brew my offering before you. But notice what he says. So I think eagerly is a good word. I'm pretty good at the Bible study part. I'm really crummy at the eagerly watching part. Really crummy at it. F.B. Myers writes We miss many answers because we get tired of waiting on the dock for the returning ships. I hate to wait. I'm the most impatient person in this room, I am sure. Ask my wife. I won't go to a restaurant if there's more than like a one second wait. (laughs) Go home and eat something left over. I will not do it. There's no food in the universe worth waiting an hour. I'm just bad that way. The psalmist cries for help. The psalmist is asking God, I believe in the larger construct. You're supposed to be just, and you're not just right now and I'm consumed with this prayer request, we'd say. And every morning I get up, and I'm ordering it. I'm putting it in front of you. If it was a sacrificial system, we can see David worshiping, watching the Levitical priest carry out the sacrifice, and he's begging God for help. Number one, the psalmist cries for help. Number two, and I would, it's a little cumbersome of an outline, but I would suggest he's saying, you can't stand, but you can bow. When you come before Yahweh Elohim, you can't stand in front of Him, but you can bow. Watch the verses 4 and following. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Number one, his cry for help. God be just. Number two, he is going to bow. Now Again, I think the text gives us enough information. Somebody is after him. The psalmist declares a core principle here. God's character cannot abide with evil. What David is arguing here is, you know, because of who you are, because you're holy and you demand a proper approach, you can't just come pell-mell in here with sin on your mind, on your conscience, on your hands. God's character cannot abide evil. Now, one of the most interesting phenomena in the last decade has been the cry for tolerance and the accusation of intolerance. We hear this all the time. Christians are intolerant people. And that gets us even more angry. We say, we're not intolerant, we just hate certain people. <laughs> and we have compartments of people we hate and loathe. Now, we don't hate them, but that's the way it looks to the outside world. This passage is going to teach you and me a little bit about our intolerance with tolerance. And part of it has to do with your condition in mind. As we come before Yahweh, we are completely intolerant in that he can't deal with us he cannot hoodwink sin he can't overlook it and say oh that's a small sin that's a insignificant one that's a big one that one we're going to to talk about but this principle that he cannot abide evil now we've got a litany that david gives us look at it again no pleasure in wickedness no evil dwells in you the boastful will not stand Hard phrase. You hate all who do iniquity. And we know God loves everyone, but the psalmist is saying something a little challenging here. You destroy those who speak falsehood. You abhor a man of bloodshed and deceit. Some religions, if you know the, you know the yin-yang symbol? It's a round symbol, and it's like a little paisley thing, and part of it's black and part of it's white. And so the theology behind that is there's one force, there's a good force and an evil force, and they work together. Many religions syncretize evil and good as juxtaposed forces. Scripture says evil's evil, and Yahweh's good. There's no amalgamation of, of spiritual powers here in one big pond, and you can use it for good or for bad. The Israel God, Yahweh Elohim, The one true monotheistic God says, no, there's me and there's everybody else. And I'm holy and I'm righteous and man is in a sinful condition. Peter Craigie writes, the ultimate destiny of destruction for a life lived in direct contradiction to those who are opposed to God. In in other words, we all come in the same situation. And David will associate himself with this in a moment. Look at it carefully. Look back at it. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Can't tolerate. No evil dwells in you. There's no compartment of you. You don't draw on the dark side of the force. And then he lists this litany. The boastful won't be there. Those who do iniquity, those who lie, those who uh, commit bloodshed, those who are men of deceit, you can't tolerate those people. The core difference of these two groups of the evil and we would say those who are not so evil is one word, arrogance. It has to do with the heart of the person who comes because the evil is characterized by these kinds of terms. The righteous is characterized with a person who's undone, with a person who knows he has no right before Yahweh Elohim. And again, we have the king of Israel saying, I can't even approach you. Sure, we can easily compartmentalize those other people and be intolerant of the wicked and the evil, but verse 7 is the hinge. Now, if you know the expression chiasm, the Greek letter key looks like a stylistic X. And so you have an A and an A prime, a B and a B prime, a C and a C prime, and on and on and on, and then let's just say for conversation D. So the structures A, A, B, B, C, C, D. A and A will be similar, B and B similar, C and C similar, D is unique. This is a chiastic psalm. Verse 7 is unique. Verse 7 is the center of the structure of the piece of music. So as, as the Hebrew brain would sing it and recite it and have it committed to memory... My understanding of the Psalter and the structure is this is the middle of the Psalm, and this is the verse that jumps off the page with the single most important word in your Old Testament, loving kindness, in the NASB. But as for me, in contrast to the litany of evildoer, but as for me, by my righteousness I can approach you? By my good deeds? By the sacrifice I just performed in verses 1, 2, and 3? No. By your loving kindness. You know, if you know your Bible, David sounds downright Pauline. I can't even come to you apart from you calling me to yourself. I'm not justified unless you justify me. Same thing David is saying in verse 7. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, Paul will talk about hyper, upper grace in the New Testament. This is the precursor. By your abundant chesed, I can come to your house. This is the contrast. Now, if this is the temple complex, not the I mean, tabernacle complex beside him, not the temple complex, we do have a little bit of a problem here. Why does David call about the holy temple where he will bow in reverence? And, and the best I can come up to, and some of you are better Bible students than me, I believe that As the psalm was used over time, when David first wrote it, they all understood it was the mobile tabernacle unit. But once it was built in Solomon's day, the word probably came a field of meaning. It doesn't mean that mobile one that every time we were supposed to set it up, only where his name let us set it up. Now we have established this is the worship center of Israel, and so we built it under Solomon's name. So I think usage changed the way the word was understood. Same word, word didn't change in the Hebrew, same word, but it came to mean the temple complex. Let me give you a lesson on this. The difference between self-righteousness and righteousness is the acknowledgement of self. The difference between self-righteousness and righteousness is the acknowledgement of self. And again, I don't know about you, you may be far better along at this than me, but the older I get, my tolerant fuse gets shorter. When I see the name of Christ vilified, it really makes me mad. When it seems to me that only Christians are fair game, it makes me really mad. When they can wail on and say terrible things about Christians in our great country, it just makes me want to get an Uzi. Just, you know, kill them in a Christian sort of way, you know, I'll just say it. I know it's wrong. I'm supposed to love them for Christ's sake, right? But I can't be selfish. I can't be self-righteous. I'm not any better. I had a pastor teacher back in Houston, Texas, named Bob Tolson. And Bob was the first man I ever heard teach the Bible. And Bob used to say a phrase all the time, that there was... No losers at the foot of the cross and no winners any place else. No losers at the foot of the cross and no winners any place else. I'm not any better than anybody. Calvary is level ground. The most heinous, evil sinner that David perhaps has depicted over against the self righteous Jew. It's just the same in God's sight. And the truth is what? you nor I are any better than anyone else. Sure, in our gradient view of sin, we might view some sins worse than others, but the truth of the matter, the ground at Calvary is level, meaning there's no better sinner or worse sinner when it comes to the work of Jesus Christ. The good news is that because the ground is level, the opportunity is for all. for those of us that have some righteous indignation in our hearts we're angry towards those who hate us ask god to do a work in your life that you see them as confused as deceived as hurt people that need a savior and for those of us who maybe have not yet come to know who this christ is that he loves you he cares about you he took your sin and mine he died in our place on our behalf instead of us And by trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you can know a relationship with the eternal God who loves you more than you can imagine. Go to the website at michaelincontext.com. That's michaelincontext.com. And let us know if you have questions or comments about the broadcast. As always, this is Michael Easley in context.